Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Investor Lab, the auditory epicenter for passionate people seeking a life of freedom, choice and abundance. My name is Goose. And my name is Charlie. And we are joining forces once again to unpack the world of business and property. God, I feel I feel like I got pretty vulnerable on this episode, Charlie. You did. Do you know, I feel like that was the quickest episode we've ever done, even though it went for the same duration of time. I mm. cannot believe how deep I was into the conversation about Endgame and understanding your positions and opinions, Goose. Yeah. Very different than some of our other episodes. Very, yeah, very, very, very different. We talked a lot about risk. We talked a lot about strategy. We talked a lot about leverage. We talked about why you might want to move in different ways in your portfolio and how that might impact you over the short, medium, and long term. We talked about the the benefits of not taking uh, non strategic action all of that kind of stuff. We talked about three phases of every property portfolio. What, did I miss anything? We've covered a lot of ground. Well, my favorite part, I'll just put it out there, is yeah. the vulnerability. And what I mean by that, and I don't use that term coyly, is that we got some very um, exact opinions on your own views, Goose, not generalized or not for average person, but how you're thinking about things in a very personal way. Yeah. Not to be misconstrued as personal advice you should copy, of course. No. But nonetheless, I find it so fascinating because there was such a gap between how you were thinking about it and then the conversations I've been having in myself or in my own head even. So it was really helpful. I mean, I'll be selfish. It was practically for me, but I'm sure other people will enjoy it also. Yeah, totally. So, you know, if you enjoy this episode, let us know. We we love the feedback. Uh, send us a message, send us an email, do all that kind of stuff because we do love the feedback. It's really great to to hear from everyone. Without any further ado, let's get stuck into it. I hope you enjoy this um, and let us know what you think. And if you want to subscribe, please do that. Whatever platform you're on, whether on YouTube, Apple, whatever, just do the beep, boop, boop, hit the bell, do the ding, up the thumbs, all the stuff. Um, do all that kind of stuff and make sure you share this with someone you love and care about as well and head to theinvestorlab.com.au to grab more resources and access more episodes. And as ever, I look forward to seeing you on the inside. Hey guys, welcome back to the Investor Lab. Charlie, how are you today? Excellent, Goose. Very exciting time. I must admit, last night we were looking at a property and um, I guess my juice is flowing, right? It's all the right type of excitement. It's like, what are you thinking about at 10 o'clock at night? It's like, what was that? <laughs> Cash flow. Yeah, it's a really interesting uh, time of year. So like, like as a business, like we're actually f- fairly busy. We've actually got quite a few clients at the moment who are... Everyone wants to buy, but like, well, actually, when this episode comes out, it's actually going to be just into the new year. So, we're, as we're recording this, it's just pre-Christmas. So, we're in the, we're in like the end of year. Let's try and get it done. And we've been doing some long days, long nights, and really digging in and finding some absolute screamers. You know, like like stuff that we, if we were to tell people about it, which I, we can now. I mean, like the property that you're talking about is a fifteen percent yield that would produce. Around about seventy thousand dollars in cash flow. I mean, it's that's 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 eye watering, you know. And there's there's been other deals we've been looking at that have been legitimately thirty percent under market value, and in like perfect condition, like renovated brick and in a very high demand area. And it's this. It's like when you start picking apart these deals, it's hard. To, like my heart starts palpitating, and I'm like. <gasps> Oh my god! Like, what is this? And it's the most—it's the most exciting thing, I think. I thought it was a joke. 
I thought, like, I laughed when you said it. Was, do you know when someone says something that it's like you, you don't, it's like, you just, I don't, this involuntary sound like came out of me as, yeah. as you mentioned it. I was like, I can't believe this is it. I have an interesting like ideation around this though, or theory, which I'll share before we get into the topic that I'm eager to discuss today about Endgame. Uh, but I just think that so many people are still operating from uncertainty and fear. So there's like this mm. volatility going on where you've got like a group of people that are like, sell it all, sell it all, get out, world's ending. And then you've also got a group of people that don't believe that, have more of a optimistic view, which I will say I am in that camp, like the world will return in my opinion. And it's like when these two things meet, it's like opportunity. It's huge opportunity. I don't think people are necessarily aware. And this doesn't just apply to property. I'm seeing the same things in business. Like yeah. I'm seeing people playing ultra conservative, trying to survive and like they're losing market share because they're not marketing. They're not getting out there. They're not being assertive in many ways. So it's like, it's really, really, really interesting time in the world. Yeah. It's fascinating. And I think we're all guilty of it in some ways, you know, like this year has been very, this past year. So we've got to remember this is coming out, this is coming out just in, I think in the first week of January, right? So, th- so, tw- so it's a good opportunity to just quickly pause and reflect because 2020 has been a, a wild ride. I don't care who you are, right? Like even the people who have had unbridled business success through this period. And I know a few people, like typically people in internet services and in health, and there's a variety of different industries that have just like, it's been a moonshot for them. So it hasn't been, it hasn't been like bad. It's been actually like ostensibly really good. Even for those people, it's crazy because they're like, holy holy hell, my my business is on a tear. All of a sudden, we've grown by 300%. Hang on a second. But at the same time, you know, one of our clients specifically, that 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 has happened. Their business has grown by well over 300%. Could even be 500% just this year. It's crazy. And But at the same time, they live in Melbourne and so they've been forced to lock down in their home. And so all of a sudden, they're like living in this like really polarized dichotomy and it's like, it's enough to make anyone kind of misstep. And I know that on a personal note, you know, we've been unsettled over this past year in a variety of different ways and had that not been the case, probably would have done things differently, acted differently, taken different opportunities, uh, taken different risks and all of that kind of stuff. So I think it's it's quite normal. The challenge is kind of working out how to get through that and 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 to to pierce that veil of, of, of volatility, which I think this year right now is is so exciting. I think I'm so unbelievably enraptured with positivity and optimism of of what lies directly in front of us not off in some distant far-flung potential future state where it's like okay you know we can all win this year and everything's nah i'm like no no right, right now like right now life is awesome and we've got the ability to grab it by the throat and do do whatever we want I share that view. I think it's a great time, a very exciting time. I'll, I'll share another insight though. Um, this is also like I had a son about this time last year. Um, if you are listening, obviously it's about November. I have a little Halloween baby. He was born on Halloween, Jack. Yeah. So for me, this year has been my home life as a child, completely different internally in the home, lockdown in Melbourne and weird business. I feel like it's been like, it's like I woke up one day and I'm a different person. Like I live in a different world. <laughs> So it's been really interesting from a psychology point of view. I think a lot of people um, really upped their game as well, which is fascinating to me. A lot of people are going to come out of it better. I realized I had a um, almost an entitled view for the world remaining normal. Like I felt like the years of, let's say the last five years, not including 2020, was like, how stable were things? How consistent were things? Yeah. It's like this is the first year as a business owner. I'm like, wow, this, this can get wild. 
Yeah. It's really interesting because um, we started our real estate company, our buyer's agency. We started that right at the start of the Banking Royal Commission, I think it was. Right, And it was a funny time to enter into the real estate sector where there was just all of this turmoil and all of a sudden lending res- lending was clamped down and and then like markets started to f- sputter and like things weren't exactly going great. So Melbourne had just had a bit of a downturn and it had just started to recover. And then there was and then there was the the Royal Commission into into lending. And then we were then we started we just started just that started to normalize out. And then we were headed towards an election, which everyone kind of thought Labor was going to win. And one of the big things was they were going to repeal uh, negative gearing, which, you know, obviously I I'm anti negative gearing anyway, but nonetheless that caused a lot of friction in the marketplace. A lot of people saying, "Look, we don't know what's happening. We'll wait till after the election," and and all of that kind, of <laughs> all of that kind of stuff. And so it's been like for us, it's been like whew, this roller coaster, and it's um, it's definitely been, should we say, character building? It's probably a good way of thinking about it. So I like that. I'll, I'll go with it. I think character. <laughs> I'm very curious though. Is like even in that, like I can even relay many terms in a similar light, right? There's always. Yeah. Do you think as business owners, and this is with your business owner hat on, maybe not so much your property one in this thing, yep. is there always just a drama? Like we just go from one drama into the next. If it's not COVID, it's the US election. If it's not <laughs> yes. that, it's this. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I do think that. And which I actually think that it gets um, exacerbated by social media. Like I've recently switched back on Facebook. Like I, I actually have pretty much not been on social media for uh, a number of months. And it really changes your perspective because I'll talk to people and they'll be like, oh, US election and this and that and the other. And I'll be like, uh, uh, I, I'm, I have no frame of reference. Like I get it. What, I understand what's going on. I read the news. Like I'm an informed guy, but I'm not paying attention to people's emotional reactions to it, which is a very different way to consume the the context of the world. Because I was very interested in, say, the US election and going, okay, what's, what's old Trumpy doing now and what's happening here? This is I thought it was quite interesting. So I was very across the whole situation. I read a lot, but I wasn't tying that information to p- p- people's direct emotional response about the volatility in the marketplace, which I think changes how people approach stuff. So I, I, I think it's very easy to constantly be in a drama state, but you've got to ask yourself a question, is that real or is that or is it uh, fabricated? Like, is it and is it fabricated by yourself? Have you gone? Oh, there's an election! Oh. It's like, hang on a second. As a business owner, you've got a job. Your job is to serve people, grow your business, all that kind of stuff. And you've got to you've got to be able to steady that ship, regardless of what the seas are doing. You know, like if you think you're driving a cruise ship, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's good weather or bad weather. The people on that cruise ship. They want to know that their cutlery is not going to fall off the table, right? And it's your job to make that happen. And that's that's kind of where you need to start to reframe how you're thinking about it because there is always a drama. And even if there's no um, existential drama, there could be an internal drama. Oh, I've hired someone and they haven't worked out. And oh, we just tried a marketing campaign and it bombed and we lost a bunch of money. Like, so even if there's not any of this kind of external or you know politics, economy, and all that kind of stuff, there's always internal drama as well. There's always some other thing or like ah, oh, we haven't set up the system properly or ah, oh, you know, someone's not happy about X, and so you can get caught in a drama cycle where you're going <laughs> and you start to live in a fear state. And if you can start to break through that, then and reframe it all as 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 great. This is, I think, the biggest challenge for business owners, I think. What do you think? 
I hadn't uh, I heard a great quote which I'll share and then I'll share an epiphany. I um I quite enjoy Scott Galloway's work. Um, mm-hmm. who's a guy who's like a tech journalist. I think he's fantastic and a little bit funny, which is why I like following him. And he said something that I first laughed at and then realized was true. And he said, Social media did to us what our parents feared video games would do to us. He said, everyone, when video games first started coming out and Mortal Kombat and Tekken and like, you know, Call of Duty, like there was this enormous scope of like, well, it's going to make our kids violent. Yeah. And or fearful or like create really, really dysfunctional humans. And then conversely, he's like, you know, didn't, there's no proof that it did any of it. But if you look across to social media, which everyone thought was going to be this optimistically great thing uh, overwhelmingly and like there was no barriers put up. He's like, so there was no parents rocking around keeping people off in the same light. Yeah. And if you fast forward, it's like that was the thing that caused a lot of this. And I I agree, it's done a lot of damage to people. It's polarised a lot of people. It's triggered a lot of people. But then second to that, much to your point of, I said, the epiphany, I realised the more I focus on, um, one, keeping my health in check. So for me, that's cycling. So consistency on the bike and eating really well and sleeping really well. And two, getting results for clients better my life goes like yeah. everything else is pretty much a null void i'm not saying they don't exist but it's like of the things i'm in control of general outputs and happiness and success is based on those things yep agreed agreed all righty i'm going to steal the microphone now i'm sure you've got plenty more to share on this topic but if we keep going what will happen is what happened last time where we won't actually talk about the thing we're supposed to talk about <laughs> totally because this has been on the agenda now for what three weeks or something well it's been on my agenda for three like three months longer because um, this uh, topic I want to cover today, and I'm, I am going to hog the question time, is something that I've been struggling to wrap my head around or understand yep. from the light of someone um, who's got more experience in property and the ways it works. Um, I didn't go to university. I'm actually a high school dropout. A lot of the mental models I have are from like uh, trial and error or modeling from other people in general. Like I didn't do an MBA or anything like that. So... I find that how you think about things largely affects the results in your life. Yep. A huge round. I'll give you an example. Um, for me, right, I've always hired people offshore. Like I do it all the time. So if someone says to me, I'll go hire 10 people offshore, like it's not a big deal. I know how to think about it. I know how to do it. For someone that's only ever worked in corporate and only knows local hiring, mm. their mind explodes and I've seen it. Um, so I just like, oh, well, they just don't know how to think about it. They're probably even more skilled than me, but they've never had that experience. So where this came to is that um, I'm sitting there one morning, I'm, I'm sitting across from Bianca, my wife, and we're, we're talking about things and we're going, well, as much as we're excited about the journey and we understand progress and you know compound interest and compound effect and you can buy more properties and pay them down, I'm like, I never actually understood the idea of how you get to an end game. Mm. And I became um, very aware that there's probably – a variety of different ways that exist past you buy a house and you pay it off, which is the logical one, I think, for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So what I would love to start this conversation uh, with and around, that if you're someone who's trying to get to a destination in your life, and I'll use me as the example, is like, you know, we want to get to income replacement, then we want to get to legacy level and retire well and do all that journey. How do you think about someone's journey from like, let's say, starting in year zero, so their first year, yeah. To actually going through to being someone that is what we would call financially independent or the journey of that kind of cycle. Well, that's pretty 
that's pretty big, right? That's that's a pretty big way to frame that up. So we would do well to to grab hold of uh, a piece and niche it down. But I'll talk broadly. I'll talk broadly about that, right? So, um, what I always talk about, and if anyone's read my book, or even if you haven't, or whatever, um, there's this idea that we have and have created called the apex progression. Now. The three phases of the apex progression are foundation, acceleration, and legacy. And those are very broad. I don't want to dig into it and lose too much time digging into the mechanics of that. But broadly speaking, the functions of the three phases are the foundation phase is about building up your capital base and building an accumulating growth base with the caveat that it must also pay for all of its own debts and expenses. Okay, so what we're talking about there is properties which are in good growth areas have, uh, you know, are most likely going to be like under market value. So you're buying, you're, you're getting equity on the way in, um, have very simple value adding opportunities because what, what you're typically, typically working with is less capital, right? So this is where you're starting at. Now, the price points that we kind of talk about in that phase are, you know, anywhere between two hundred thousand dollar properties and say five hundred thousand dollar properties. It can kind of depend on your situation because the thing is, as well, you can have a little bit more money, but if you don't have a growth base, you don't, you can't progress past the foundation phase. You need to get some assets which are in good growth areas and are going to be your engine room. That's the function. And then in terms of like cash flow, it's not about income replacement at all, like not even vaguely. It's about um, it's about debt buyback, right? Which is a very different idea. So the idea is that you want to buy properties, like buy say maybe three or four, two, depends, depends. But I would typically say between two and four, depending. You want to buy two to four properties which are going to serve as your growth base and you want them to produce enough cash flow that they can pay for all of their own debts and expenses so that you don't tap out on serviceability and you can then use that equity and use that growth base and that capital that you will have generated by buying in those growth assets. How Then you can move that into the next phase. Making sense so far? I'm with you so far. Perfect. Awesome. So then the function of the next phase, which is called the acceleration phase, is to do is to really focus on two things, equity and cash flow. Now, everyone's different. No two properties are the same. No two people are the same. No two destinations are the same. None of it's ever the same, which is why we need to think about this from a principal perspective and then think about how it applies on your in your own human life. Now, some people are more capital rich and some people are more cash flow rich, right? So some people will have higher serviceability and less actual working capital that they can use to build their property portfolio with. Some people have got, you know, a ton of savings. Maybe they've got an inheritance, but whatever the case may be, but they might have a lot of cash or equity, but not a lot of serviceability. And I've met just as many people in that position as people who've got more serviceability than capital. Like it, it's a relatively even split. So to that degree, then there's no one size fits all. So you've got to go, okay, based on your situation, once you have built up enough equity to be able to move into the next phase, uh, so which is typically going to be roughly around $150,000 to $200,000 of available equity right, to enter into the uh, acceleration phase. And I'll explain that in a moment, what, why that. But really the function is you need to focus on whatever you need most in your portfolio. So for example, we've got clients right now who have got um, plenty of capital and almost like very limited serviceability. Like they're going to be very close to tapping out when they can buy if we don't focus on cash flow assets right now. So that phase could uh, dictate a couple of things. So we could buy an existing triple occupancy property that's going to be high cash flow. We could buy 
a property that we can add a granny flat to provided that the individual has enough capital to execute on the granny flat strategy as well to increase their cash flow, right? So there's different ways to, to elevate the serviceability. Now, the, the, the thing that kills most property portfolios is running out of serviceability. That's the number one thing that stops people growing their property portfolio. However, if you want to do it well, you also need to make sure you're focusing on, on, on increasing your capital. So then there's the other side of the acceleration equation, right? So you've got one side, which is cash flow, and you've got one side, which is equity, you know, equity generation. And that's things like uh, subdivisions, maybe small developments, or basically chunk deals where we're going to okay, go, how can we, how can we uh, what are the easiest ways that we can increase and accelerate our capital position? Often that will transpire into a cash flow improvement as well, and but we're looking at what the function of those kind of two things are. Now, understanding that there are only really ever two levers that you ever need to pay attention to in your property portfolio, and that is your accessibility to debt and and your accessibility to to um, capital. You know that's 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 or you know income versus capital. That's all you ever really need to focus on. So if you're if you need to focus more on increasing your serviceability or buying back some of your serviceability, you can do that by increasing your cash flow, um, or you could also do it by paying down some of your debt. And this is going to loop back to this end game idea. So you can so for example, you may go okay, well I've got a subdivision project, so I can chunk up my capital. But by say doing a subdivision, a small small lot subdivision. So what I'm saying is like a battle axe subdivision or something like that. You could subdivide the land, sell the land, and then take that capital and put that back into your existing portfolio to increase your existing portfolio's cash flow and decrease your um, your debt and therefore free up some of your borrowing capacity. That's one way of doing it. So the function of that whole phase is to play this dance. It's a dance between borrowing capacity, capital availability, and all of this kind of stuff and understanding how to position what assets at what time. Now, it is entirely possible to never go past the acceleration phase because you can absolutely buy enough assets um, relatively easily too. You can do it in you can do it in like three or four moves probably for most people. Uh to get to an income replacement point uh, and go, okay, cool. Like I've kind of reached that point now where if I didn't want to show up in my business or job, then I could do that. I could spend the days at home reading books with my kids. It's all good. You can do that in in only a few moves if you make the right moves. It's not super easy. It's more likely it's going to be like sort of four to five rather than three to four, but it's functional. And it also depends on how well you've set yourself up in the foundation phase. So there's a few caveats there, but it's totally possible. Then the third phase is what we call the legacy phase, right? Now, that's, that phase is it's a different game. Like it's a completely different game to play. And so that property you mentioned at the start of the episode, that was a legacy asset. Now, the reason it was a legacy asset, I'll explain the characteristics of it. So the, the rough price point is around about $850,000 and the net cash flow is around about $75,000. Sounds pretty appealing, right? Definitely. The, yeah, the problem the problem with it or sorry, not the problem. The challenge with it is the uh, the borrowing requirements. So you're going to need to have about a 40% deposit to buy for that specific property because of the characteristics of that property, the lending risks and all of that kind of stuff. You're going to need about around about 35 to 40% deposit to buy it, which on that kind of property you're talking like 350 400 grand when you factor in all the costs. So it's a lot of money, which is why that fits in later. Now, how many of those would you need? For most people, not many. Like for most people, that, Two? <laughs> one's probably enough. Like one's probably okay. Like if somebody, if you could chuck 70 grand cash flow at someone and go, hey, there you go. Just 
if that's all you get, most people would be like, all right, cool, sweet. I'll just go surfing. Happy days. Because for a lot of people, that is a very good income. Now, but you're right. Yeah, like two. But the problem is you need to build up your capital to get to that point. And so there's this progression that you need to work through. Now, when you try and jump too far ahead, you can actually end up slowing yourself down, right? And that's the challenge. That is the challenge. So, for example, if in that scenario, if you were to take all of your all of your available capital, lump it into this legacy asset, you would not have the ability to continue to build a property portfolio around that. So, the way I like to think about it is this. Before you move into the legacy phase, because that's probably going to tie up your capital and make it much less available. Before you move into the legacy phase, you need to be able to get to a fork in the road. Okay, That fork in the road needs to be that you can go and buy a legacy asset. So a legacy asset could be, it could be a shopping center. It could be a, a warehouse. It's probably going to be something commercial. It's probably going to have commercial lending attached to it. could be a, a, a larger development. So it could be like a six townhouse development or something like that. It's probably going to have commercial lending requirements, which is what makes it a little trickier. could be building a boarding house from scratch, right? So it's, it's these kind of more complex, higher risk, higher reward, higher capital intensification, more more, 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 get you more tied up. So you want to get to a fork in the road where you can do that in the one hand and also continue to build a residential property portfolio. And when you're at that fork in the road, that is when you know that you can progress to the legacy phase. It's that simple. So if you sit there and go, oh, I could do that, but bam, I'm out. I can't buy any more properties for like the next four years. All right, maybe it's not the, maybe it's not the right move. Okay, but if you can kind of do those kind of two levers together, then you can do that. Does that kind of explain the three phases? It does, but I've got so many questions. Great. <laughs> awesome. Because <laughs> I think for... All right, so when you said that to me and I've read your book. And by the way, if you haven't got a copy of the book, go buy it. It's a really great read for articulation of some of the things Goose has just mentioned. And I think it just makes you a better investor if you're getting into this game. It's worth a read. Definitely. So quite enjoy it and your story at the start. Anyway, I add a top level right if i look at that i grasp that completely as i do for most people but it feels like there's so many details or circumstantial things that then make it a bit cloudy right yep 100 so you just described you go okay foundation sweet nailing that get a few foundational growth assets acceleration nuts i'm doing granny flats everywhere great maybe i do a sub, little subdivision or something yeah to keep your capital going up yep yeah i progress through that stage and then it's like right i've i've reached the fork you've mentioned here where it's like i can keep going in residential and i'm now have the ability to buy some potentially commercial assets or higher yielding cash flow assets with high risk high reward probably higher education requirements as well yep. and a better understanding of things all right i've i've got this plan and i get that from there where I find it gets a little bit cloudy for me, though, is that there's some details that start to exist that um, I become like, oh, I don't know. And I want to go through some and I want to ask them and then maybe we might have to do some like um, examples of the type of person. Yeah. You ready for this? Ready I'm, for this? I'm always ready. I love it. All Let's right. go. I knew you would answer that way, by the way. And I was like, sweet, he'll give me the overview. This will be great. <laughs> but my first point is, right, you've just mentioned all of this. Let's just head straight to debt. How does debt play a role in this and how do you think about it? Like is the, as I said, it's how you think about it. Is my aim that the end game I should have no debt? Is it wrong or bad or not the greatest idea to have 50% debt when I'm 80? Is that even an issue? You, you want the answer? Definitely. 
depends. So here's the thing, right? It, 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 it depends. So here's the thing. Here's the way to like. Let's talk about how to think about debt, um, yep. because every single person is going to be different. It's all going to depend on your risk profile. I am absolutely not going to sit here and say, well, everyone should have fifty uh, uh, percent, you know, loan to value ratio. Because hey, man, I don't know. Like it depends. If you want to hire, I want, I want to caveat this though. I had a conversation with a um, a broker who I will not name. Um, it's not the broker I use. If you are listening to me, you were good about this. Um, but <laughs> he said to me, like, legitimately, you would not be wanting to head into your. He goes, you shouldn't be carrying any debt after sixty five. He said your whole plan should be working, and I'm like, I don't think that's right. That's like, maybe. not that. No, that no. You can't. You cannot live in those levels of absolutes. What happens if What happens if someone's listening to this and they're sixty and haven't built a wealth plan? Like they're gonna get a, guess what? Go carry some debt. Like it's not that it's debt is not bad. Nothing. There's nothing wrong with debt. It's all about managing risk. So, if you want a higher return on investment, if you're optimizing for return on investment, more leverage is better. Like let's take this to an extreme. If you could, if you could have a portfolio. If all of let's just simplify it. At one house, if you bought one house at 100% LVR, right? Or let's just say 99% LVR, okay? And it's a $500,000 house and you bought it at 99% LVR. So you've only got 1% of debt of, of equity in the property and all of the rest of it is debt. And then so you've got let's say $5,000 in the deal and then and then it goes up by 10%. All right, so it's made fifty thousand dollars of of operating profit. Now, just like all profits in any business, to get that profit out, you're going to need to pay tax on it. Okay, and this is scenario is called capital gains tax. But it doesn't matter. Even if you sell shares, you got to pay capital gains tax. Everyone goes, "Oh, so what about the selling costs?" You got to realize selling costs or liquidation costs, regardless of how you access your capital. So I think that's a just a completely moot point. Anyway, moving on from that little rant. So. Um, if you've made $50,000 of, of profit out of 10% growth and you've only put $5,000 in it, I haven't got the maths on that, but what's that? What's that in terms of return on investment? It's like a 1,000% 10x? Well, it's 10x, right? So it's 1,000%. That is a 1,000% return on investment. So you say to someone like, do you want 1,000% return on investment? Awesome. Go and find go and find someone who will give you 100% LVR loan. <laughs> they exist, right? They do they, exist. They Scary, exist. But they do. Yeah, go and get 100% LVR loan and go buy a house, right? And just like if it goes up, dude, crushing it on an ROI basis, right? That's, that's awesome. But it's pretty high risk, right? Let's be honest, right? If you are leveraged that high, it is higher risk. Now, some people have got different risk tolerances and it's going to depend on where you are in your journey as well. So, for example, if um, let's just take an example that if you bought a 95%, I actually did this calculation the other day. I'm trying to remember the price point that I did. it. I think I did a 95% LVR on a $300,000 property at, on an average growth rate of 5% a year and, uh, and it was on interest only at 6% yield, right? And so I did all these, that was the basis of the test. I just wanted to kind of have a calculation on the ROI. I said, if it grew at just 5% a year, so no moonshot growth, no double digit years, nothing like that, just 5% a year, pretty pretty average. 
Now, and then I capitalized the growth and the cash flow together. And then I said, what if we sold it after five years? Because you get an interest only period for five years, right? So I said, what if we just got one $300,000 property at 95% LVR, it grew at 5% a year, it was 6% yield, and it was on interest only. And in and at four years and 11 months, we sold it. So then I factored in capital gains tax, I factored in selling costs. And then I said, okay, what would be the net return versus the capital injected? Now, I can't remember the exact numbers in front of me, but it was something like a uh, over the five-year period would be a 288% return on investment, which is an annual rate of return of 60% roughly, nearly. We'll have to year. get someone to fact-check our maths in this yeah. conversation. Uh, if anyone's listening, of course, quotable, quotable numbers here. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally, totally. But like, you know, I'll actually maybe record a record something and stick it in the show notes on this because it's really interesting. On a return on investment basis, it's, it's quite good, but what you asked about was debt and what's the end game. Is that the way you should think about optimizing your portfolio forever? Well, no, probably not because that's not going to be optimizing for cash flow over the long term. So as you start to move into different phases in your portfolio, you're going to want to be considering what is the best based on your life plan and life situation. Okay, so to reiterate that around, okay, because this is the part where it's like I want to make sure we answer this because this has been literally a question I've been thinking. I'm 32 today. I've got a good working career ahead of me. I enjoy my business and I want to keep doing it. Yeah. My earning potential across this time is solid. Well, I think it is. Yeah. Probably have people out there smashing it. But when I look at that, I go, okay, well, if I'm going to take on 80% LPRs or anything right now, mm. I'm not as concerned because I can look down the road and say, well, there's years of good earning ahead of me potentially. Yep. And I'm comfortable with that because I can pay these things off or raise capital or do what I has. How does that change for the person that's, let's say, 60 then? Because they don't have that or 62. We'll use 30-year gap. Do you change the way you think about debt and lending? I, I don't want to sound too ambiguous, but it entirely, entirely depends. Because what, it, what, you're actually, what you actually need to consider is not the debt. Don't think about the debt. The debt is just a, a tool. Like, you know, the banks are saying, like, we're happy to secure against an asset at a certain basis. Now, 80% LVR, you've got to think about that. What, how bad would that property need to go for it to go completely bad, right? What, what would need to happen? If you had an 80% LVR, so uh, the bank owns 80%, you own 20%, for that property to go bad, as in like for that to go into negative equity where you, it's like it's you know potential to get foreclosed on and you know it's no good, right? Well, for it to go bad, it'd need to fall in value by 20%, right? Now, that has happened in Australia. You can look at places like Perth and find examples of markets that have done that. But that's where you need to start thinking about your risk and exposure. Like what are the drivers in the marketplace and all of that kind of stuff. You've got to think about your exposure risk. Would I, would I if I was 65 years old, want to have a $10 million property portfolio leveraged at 80%? Probably not. But I would also say... I'd also say that's a little bit down to personal preference as well, right? Because here's the thing that you need to really be thinking about. You need to be thinking not so much about like, oh, what's my debt position? It's what's my risk exposure? What is my cash flow? How many moving parts do I want in my business, i.e. my property portfolio, all of that kind of stuff? Because there's a couple of different ways to think about it, right? If you if you owned less assets and had zero debt, they would be way higher cash flow. So what I spoke about a moment ago uh, was optimizing for return on investment. Typically, when you optimize for a return on investment, you're not optimizing for cash flow. That is not a good way to go for cash flow because the more debt you have, the more expenses you have. The debt totally. is the, you've got to pay more interest. Totally, the debt is the most expensive part of the operating costs of your real estate 
empire, right? Your real estate business. So then you got to think about, well, what am I optimizing for? And we've, we've used that term a lot on these episodes. I think it's so, so critical to think about that in so many different ways. Because if you're optimizing for cash flow and you have more capital, then it kind of like it changes the game because you could, ex- you could for example, let's say you're a cash buyer and, you, you know, say you've got a million dollars in cash and you go and buy a $1 million uh, property that is yielding at 4%. Now, I'm not going to do the maths on that because I don't know it, right? but that's going to produce a significant amount of cash flow. Why? Because you've got no debt. So, well, a million dollar property, 4% would be 40 grand a year. Yeah, minus minus uh, minus things like property management rates and everything like that. So there'd be a little bit of a net difference. Call it thirty. We'll go thirty. Yeah. Then. Okay. Cool. Awesome. Right. And so if you had the ability to do that, you would have thirty grand cash flow. Now, if you said to someone, "Do you want to buy a million dollar property that has thirty thousand dollars cash flow?" Most would be like, "Oh my god, it sounds great." But what you're really talking about is what's the debt equation in in that property. And this is this is how I think that we need to change the way we think about debt and what the end game is. Because a lot of people will say. Here's the strategy, right? You buy um, two properties every year and then in year... I've seen this played out before. It was like buy two properties every year uh, for 10 years and or maybe it's one property every year for 10 years and then get to year 10 and then sell half and pay down the other five and then you have five that give you the cash flow you need for, for life, right? I'm so happy you said that. That's literally the next question I had on my notes. So if you're really? talking... Yeah, because this is the next period. So you, we're talking about, okay, as you get older, the amount of debt, associated to return versus cash flow and yeah. risk, which I think is the big one there. But then the next one I go to is if, even if you're that same person, and we'll use an example, pretend you've got 10 $1 million properties and you've bought one a year for 10 years. Is the aim then to give it time to pay itself down from rents? Is the aim, as you've mentioned yeah. here, to start thinking about you sell some down to accelerate the payment of others? Are you just constantly trying to introduce well, let's new talk, capital? Let's talk. Let's talk about your situation because yours, yours, you, you mentioned that you're 32. You've got a good, you know, you've got a good working life ahead of you. Here's here is the here is the reason that the idea exists that you need to buy as many properties as you can and then sell down some and, and use it to fund the other ones, right? To pay down all of the debt. It's typically because those properties are negatively geared. That's where that thinking comes from. Right, because at the end of the day, unless you pay down the debt, you are not going to get any cash flow for a really long time. So that's why the idea uh, is there that you need to go really hard and push your limits, and then sell some assets to release the capital to pay down the other ones, because you'll reduce your debt and increase your cash flow. However, if you buy positive cash flow properties, even if all you did was buy six percent yielders, which again, just to reiterate, six percent yield. If you only let's say you buy, buy only three hundred fifty thousand dollars properties at six percent yield, you're gonna to need to buy a lot of them to replace your income. If you just look at the first year um, income, right, probably about fifteen hundred bucks. However, the benefit of those assets, let's say you buy, let's say you were to go and buy one every year for the next ten years, but then you got twenty years of working life ahead of you. Those properties are gonna pay down their own debt and subsequently increase their own cash flow. So it starts to act like a flywheel because what's what's gonna happen is. They, the, you're not even paying for your debt. The tenants are paying for your debt. You could, you could walk away. You could go sailing around the world with your family, and your tenants will pay Come down your ca- debt. Caravaning goes caravaning. Caravan, caravan, right? On your, on your, on your land, you're in your land yacht. So the, the debt, as the debt gets paid down by the tenants who are also producing a surplus, so you can actually pay it down faster if you want. If you're not in a position where you need the cash flow now, 
right? You can actually just keep lumping all that cash flow into those properties, pay down the debt faster, which reduces your operating expenses, which in turn increases your cash flow and which then allows you to pay down the debt faster and it starts to speed up like a flywheel. And so there's the ability that you don't need to sell down the assets because the assets will pay down their own debt. And this is the benefit of having principal and interest, having properties which are positive cash flow, like net positive cash flow and on principal and interest. So, but again, what we're talking about here is like, well, how does, how does this apply, right? So if you're earlier on in your journey, you probably need to optimize for expanding your footprint, right? You probably need to try and get your growth base there, which means that you need to tread a fine line between getting a good ROI and spreading your capital and also making sure that you're um, liquidating your debt, i.e. having positive cash flow properties. As you move later into your portfolio, it might make more sense because you don't need to have 10, 20, 30 properties to to get the return to get the cash flow return. So you may go, okay, well, how could I have five properties which um, which have a lower debt level? Again, I don't believe that you should necessarily have um, completely owned properties outright. I actually don't think that's an efficient use of a capital. I think that's that's actually pretty silly, in my opinion, is to have, is to have um, zero debt on a property. But you might say, well, how can I reduce that down to, um, say, 50% or, or 60% LVR so that you've got more efficiency with your money and you're still growing, but you're increasing your cash flow basis? Does that kind of answer the question? does, but I've, I want some opinionated questions now. So these are opinions. I'll flag this All of this is, is only- opinion. To- totally, but I want to know your personal opinion and not uh, you. You, when you answer, sometimes you give a general opinion. Yeah. Okay. Right? So, like the three phases are a generality, but then there's the what would goose do, which is a personalized opinion. Yeah. So I look at this right now and say, well, let's pretend uh, goose is sixty five. Mm-hmm. He's got his ten one million dollar properties. What LVR are you running at? Seventy percent. Okay, so that's the goose acceptable level. As I said, opinion and risk tolerances, that's yeah, not that personalized. But for goose, I'm just very curious because you've spent much more time thinking about it than I have. Yeah. Now, it might change when I'm 60, but but I'll, I'll tell you why if you want. Definitely. Okay. So, it might change when I'm 60. I'm not. I'm 32 as well, right? Oh, no, I'm not. I'm 34. Man. Oh, anyway, flying. Oh God! I'll, t- I'll uh, tell you what, though. I reckon you look much younger than me. I'm like, fuck. Business has done its toll. Look at this hairline. What is happening here? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So, like, for me, the reason I say seventy percent is because I want I want my money to work for me. The way I like to think about my money is I want it, I want to put it to use. I want a return on investment. Now, 70%. So when I, I touched on a minute ago, where you got to think about what your risk is, what your exposure risk is. Now, if you were to um, consolidate a portfolio and rather rather than going, how big can I make it? I'm going to buy as many properties. I'm going to buy, I'm going to buy 10, I'm going to, I'm going to buy a hundred, $100,000 properties versus 10, $1 million properties or whatever the case may be. It, there's, I know which one I would choose. I would, there's a degree that you want to diversify and have diversification and um, to to spread your footprint, so you're not don't have uh, single point sensitivity risk. But there's also a point where you can have too many moving parts and it ceases to become efficient. Anyway, so going back to that, uh, if I was to have that kind of portfolio. I would want to have good quality assets. Now, good quality assets are going to be typically, you know, in a, in a stable area and all of that kind of stuff. The reason I say seventy percent is because I wouldn't foresee. Now, there's every chance that you could be wrong, but if you've got a diversified property portfolio of say ten properties, right, and one falls by forty percent, 
right? Let's just say it crashes. Let's say you've got a cool property in Perth and it crashes again, but it crashes by 40% or 50%. The fact of the matter is you've got 10 properties that have all got 30% in it, so you'll be able to soak up that equity loss and it won't it won't force you in a position where you need to go, oh my God, I need to sell stuff. You can probably just wait it out and be okay and like no stress. Uh, if I had 90% exposure on all of that when I was older, I'd probably say it's like you there's probably no need to do that. You could probably sell down some assets and reduce reduce some of your increase some of your cash flow, reduce some of your risk. And the reason I, I don't say fifty um, percent or even just pay them all off or anything like that is because I want an efficiency of money. I believe debt is a really good tool. Like debt is debt is good in my opinion. Debt is a great thing. Debt is what gives us the ability to do more. So I also want to get a good return on investment, but it's about balancing return on investment and cash flow. So the types of assets I would invest in would be higher yielding assets at that phase of my life, higher yielding assets to get the cash flow. So now, realistically, maybe it's going to be 60% LVR because of lending because it's probably going to be in the, in the legacy phase, but the premise is the same. I want to I want to continue to access debt because I want a better return on my, on my investment and to continue to expand my footprint in a safe way that's also going to give me the cash flow. Very interesting. Okay, so then conversely, right, I want to ask the other end of that. We've got 32-year-old wink-wink goose today <laughs> um, <laughs> and he's sitting there. How are you thinking about, um, you've mentioned debt and the flow, and this is only from your personal point of view I want to reiterate. Are you yeah. looking at yourself right now as a business going, well, my objective is to set up these flywheels, right? I want to acquire a property that can be self-sufficient and then any new capital I create or equity produced is just to build the next flywheel and expand footprint. And then that's the way I'm viewing getting to that next stage before legacy, which would be the accelerated phase, I believe. Maybe. Yes, Acceler- acceleration is 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 before that. So um, here's my here's my here's my opinion. Um, I've got a reasonable risk tolerance, right? And the reason I have a reasonable risk tolerance is because of the you know I guess it's because of my own personal story like I, I understand what it's like to lose everything and to have nothing and to be broken living on your office floor so I understand what it's like when you get when you when it all goes bad so I've kind of got a measure of okay well where I'm prepared, prepared to sit on that spectrum and, and be cool um, now I'm in the beneficial position that I do property all the time I do property six days a week no, seven days a week even on my time on my time off on the weekend I was I was looking at property data and researching properties right so I, I did think it was funny when you went to Yamba for some time off you know mm. the f- firstly oh the yields here and I'm like yeah. how funny <laughs> <laughs> couldn't help himself <laughs> <laughs> yeah we we're looking at properties all the time um so I'm in a very beneficial position where I can assess the risk very well. You know, I understand how to position myself in a good asset, in a good market. And we've done it successfully time and time and time again. So for me, I understand that I'm not gambling per se. So, so my current, and I'll explain my current viewpoint. My current viewpoint is to, is to leverage high, right? So we're actually... We're Would actually you be okay with plus 90? I would consider it. I would consider it. Yeah, yeah. I would. Uh, I would. So we actually, to be transparent, we actually did do some inquiries um, to go to ninety-five. All right. Probably not going to do that for context. We're actually probably not going to do that. The reason for that. The reason for that is because uh, I believe that we are at a very unique uh, time in our economy and in the real estate market. Very, very unique. Um, and 
I can see the extreme benefit in expanding our footprint. So to that degree, I would see that right now is an opportunity for higher leverage. But here's the caveat. I don't want to carry that leverage for a very long time. So the intention would be to uh, buy underpriced or high, you know, like high high return probability kind of assets on a high leverage right now and then to deleverage that in about five years, which is actually why I was doing that calculation earlier. So... Yeah, well, I'm so glad you're, you're actually moving into my next questions like so fluently. So just to reiterate or recap, because I think um, a lot of the things might seem um, cursive knowledge for you, where it's like you take for granted what you know, where for people like myself, where this isn't where we spend our time. It's like, oh, hang on. Earlier on, personal preference is higher LVR. You're completely comfortable with on shorter time spans. Yeah, on a shorter um, time scale, yeah. Yeah. The next thing I say, though, is that uh, in this imaginary journey I've had in my life, I realized that everything's a fixed asset. So I'll give you the example. Like I bought a property and I just imagine I own that for the rest of my life. The idea of selling it or when to sell it, if that's even a consideration, is not there. It's kind of been, okay, well, you're accumulating and accumulating. Now, there's two parts to this question. Do you think um, it's necessary to buy and sell assets to be successful in this game? Should people be thinking about it? Okay, well, really, no. on average, you may only hold a property for 10 years. No, no, you absolutely don't need to sell, right? And here's here's probably the better way to think about it for for most investors. right? And again, I'm sorry, that's, But that's how I want you to divide it, right? Because I think the advantage you have, you've got a couple, right? Is one, higher skill. Yep. So for you to go to 95% on an LVR with your skill level and awareness probably less risky than me going around and doing 70%. Well, yeah, totally. Here's the thing. If I go to 95% LVR on a property and I know that I'm, I know, I know, don't think and I don't speculate, but I know that I'm buying it for say 10%, 15% under market value, like it's, there's pretty limited risk there because I know that I'll be able to refinance that in three months and, and I know that the value will be there because it'll just be an, an underpriced asset. So for me, it's about risk management, but go on, sorry. Conversely to that, um, and I'll use this as an example. If your whole business is dealing with investors and everyone you look around has 10 properties and that's the norm, yeah, that becomes your reality. If you've got eight, you're like, well, hang on, I need 10. For myself, like when I look around, and not that I understand the investing portfolios of the people around me, but it seems unusual to be doing this thing so more risk is inferred because it isn't normal in my world. Right, does that make sense? Did I articulate that well? No, no. So, what building a property portfolio seems risky. Okay, so I'll act it from this way: every person you speak to in your business, yeah, probably has property in some form, or at least is trying to get property. Yep. Right. Everyone in my world, I got like it's abnormal for anyone to be investing in property. It's not the normal at all. Mm. So I feel like I'm the odd one out. And conversely, I'll use a different example. I'm very comfortable hiring in the Philippines. Mm. Normal for me, very normal. But for a lot of people, they see that and they're like, oh, can they speak English? It's like, like exaggerated example. Yeah. But it's like you see how the different worlds kind of get us to think about these things differently. Like your version of normal is very different than mine. Yeah. When we start to think about property. So bringing it back to the buying and selling of assets. And if that's necessary, essential, or how to go about it, how would you think about that one for yourself and then two? For someone, we'll say, like me, who isn't a pro or pretending to be one or, or anything like that. 
Yeah, it's going to depend. It's really just going to depend on a couple of things. I know I keep saying it depends, but let's try and unpack that. So you don't ever need to sell, right? So you can you can buy you can buy if you're prepared to play a longer game. You don't ever need to sell. You just buy you buy the right assets and you hang on to them. And it's that simple. Like it's not a it's not rocket surgery. You just buy, and typically you're going to want to sit with a lower LVR, manage your risk a little bit better. Make sure you got good cash flow and play a slightly longer game, and that's okay. And realistically, most investors should only buy assets that they could hold for the long term. In fact, everyone should probably only ever buy assets that you should that you could hold for the long term. What's, Even, what's long term? Thirty years? Yeah, 50? yeah, like forever, like forever, like forever, like like like. You probably shouldn't ever buy an asset in a location that you think. <sighs> this could go bad in five years, but I'll try and get in and get out. You should probably never do that. I would never advise that that should be part of the strategy. Um, so you should always buy in locations that if you did just keep it forever and passed it down to your kids, it would be cool, right? That's a really great lens to put on it. Now, what that typically means is you don't buy in high volatility mining towns and things like that, okay? And, and there's a real... So a lot of the time when people think about trading properties, it's like, does that mean you're just going to buy in like high volatility mining towns and stuff like that and and you can do that but we did a whole episode on that I, it's not I don't think it's a good idea most people get it wrong right it's just a reality so for most for pretty much every investor should always think what if I just held this forever like even if they buy something and go ooh I could buy this and I could uh, subdivide it and I could build on it and I could sell the whole lot and I could make a whole bunch of profit yeah awesome that sounds sick that sounds awesome however just think, what if you didn't do that? What if your situation changed and you couldn't get the debt to actually do the development you wanted to do? And what happens if you just held it forever? Would you still be happy with that purchase? It's a really great way to think about it. Um, and that's why I like to think about all investments. Like, can you, could you just hold it forever and would that be good? Right. So, there's the first part. So, therefore, you don't ever need to sell. And you will just have properties that will pay down their own debt. Um, they'll increase your equity position. You can probably pay down a little bit of your own debt as well. And, you know, it's all good. You know, everyone's got life and business and stuff going on else, elsewhere around them. It's ha- happy days. No stress. Um, conversely, can you take a more active strategy? And the answer is yes, definitely you can. Right, And it's... and. Uh, broadly speaking, as a business, I advocate for people to, to adopt a buy and hold strategy, mostly because I want them to have a buy and hold mindset. Now, the reality in the situation, you know, I'll kind of talk about the way I'm thinking about things for our own portfolio right now. So, the types of assets that I want to buy are assets which are cash flow positive and have the ability to do a small development on them. Now, I'll use small development interchangeably with granny flat potential or um, build an extra house subdivision. Yes, yeah, small smaller subdivision. Okay, so now the reason that I want to do that and I aggressively want to do that in the next um, couple of years is because I see that over the next few years, there's a there's there's we're in that we're at the start of a big property upswing, and I think it's I think. People are really starting to see that, which is great. Um, however, however, I don't want to stay over leveraged. So, the way that I am thinking about it is to build out the footprint, add value, sell some assets, keep some, deleverage them, and then recycle that debt again and, and move on and keep building that way. So, it's not just a expand, sell it all, expand, sell it all. And it's also not 
let's go into high volatility markets and try and just swoop up and sell at the right time. And I believe you can time markets on the way in because that's what we do very well. I think it's it's much harder to time on the way out. I am actually working with a company right now. I am actually working with a company right now to build a system to identify uh, when to sell out of a market for maximum return. So that's pretty exciting, but that's still a little way off um, before we have that technology available um, to analyze that data and get it, get it right. So the way I'm thinking about it is to expand and then deleverage and increase cash flow and do stuff that way. Does that kind of make sense in the thinking? It does. It, it's so interesting to hear, um, and I think many people may also agree, but your own opinions on this. Yeah. Because like a lot of the answers in this are it depends, which if you're someone in the game, it depends is like the worst answer. You want, no, no, this is step one and this is step two and it exactly works like this all the time. <laughs> yeah. And there's no variance. So here's the thing. Yeah, but here's the thing, right? So so in our in our current in our current position, we can like we we've got a cool business, right? We've got a cool business that we love. Um we're not gonna stop doing that anytime soon. Um I don't think that we're I don't think that People are going to want to stop buying houses and want help with that. Like I feel like there's, you know, we our business is going to be okay, and so we can we can then look at our 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 personal wealth building strategy outside of business and go, okay, cool. When we look at our 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 uh, budget, our business budget, we can go, okay, cool. How much is going to uh, team labor and staff? How much is going to marketing strategies? Uh, how much is going to you know op- overheads and operating expenses? Uh, and then, okay, cool. Can we take any money off the table? Right? And what are we going to do with that? And what's that going to mean? And and how are we going to replenish that? Because really what we're optimizing for is, is, is a different phase of life as well. And so that's why I say it depends. Like right now, Gabby and I are sitting there going, okay, let's get active. Let's have an active next five years, right? We're going to do five years quite active. Like we've currently got a development approval to do a duplex on one of our properties and we're going, okay, let's 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 get into it and let's get quite active in our own property portfolio for the next five years. Then we want to deleverage, reset, rethink, recalibrate, re-strategize. So I think it's about having a bit of a game plan about it because if you just ad hoc go, oh, oh all right, I'm just going to go leverage really high without having a very clear understanding of the types of assets you're going to buy, why you're going to buy them, where you're going to buy them, the reason you're going to buy them in those areas, what is the capitalization potential for that money? It's a business, right? And you've got to go, okay, well, how much am I how much am I going to invest in that direction and what risk am I going to take? And what happens, you know, you got to ask yourself the question, you know, like what is the upside, what is the downside and can I live with the downside? You know, we're taking very calculated perspectives on how we want to do all of the things that we want to do to achieve a function that in five years we want to be able to transition, uh, you know, our, our, our life situation and that's, that's the goal. For a lot of people, and this includes me, um, you, if you do get into property, eventually you'll come across developments or active strategies and the yeah. question comes up where you start going, could I do this? Yeah. Or is it from there? Again, as from your own opinion, and I love just framing it all up in that, how much does it really take if you want to be good at doing small developments or more active strategies? Is it attainable if you've got a day a week spare? Is this something you can do in your spare time or is this like, Stick your course unless you've got a lot of time to put into education and building yeah. relationships and things. I would say for most people, don't try and do it yourself. It's, it's very complex. You know, like here's the, here is the the benefit that Gabby and I uh, brought to the table coming into this uh, industry. We had uh, me personally had 15 years of project management experience in um, in events. 
Now, what that what that actually means is that I was doing construction management. So, because we're like building basically whole cities. So, like water infrastructure, plumbing, toilets, um, shelters, uh, huge scaffolding building, right? It was large-scale construction site management was what I was doing. Machinery operate, the whole moving parts, council applications, building permits, you know, building codes, understanding all of those things. So we actually have a benefit that we brought a lo- that we brought a lot of that knowledge to the table. So when we first started looking at property, we we're like, yeah, this makes sense. Okay, so yeah, we were oh the planning department, the people that I already speak to on a daily basis. Yeah, cool, no stress. I I understand what that code code uh, BC two three one is. Cool, great. So it kind of translates a little differently. Now, if you have no experience and you just go, oh yeah, I'm just going to go and start developing, I think you run a very high risk of probably getting it wrong and there's a lot of risk in that. And I I don't generally recommend that people should just go ad hoc into it without doing a lot of training, spending a lot of time. uh, Or the other way to do it is just short circuit and find someone who's got the skills to be able to do it. Now, I can say that ostensibly it's not that hard, right? You just find a property, you get a town planner, um, you you get you get an architectural design drawn up. You say you, you lodge your permits with council. You say, hey, can can I build this here? Can I do it like this? Great, awesome. You understand where the, where all the uh, what all the requirements are, and then you get a builder and you build the thing. And it's pretty simple steps. For most people, I think there's probably a few too many complexities in there. Maybe, maybe. I, I, grew, I grew up in a, a flipping family. To, yep. um, and I have seen things go sideways. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, totally. And th- and this is this is my this is my point is I think they can go sideways. You've got to understand how to understand. Hey, manage that risk. I'm not. Hey, I, we, we could get it wrong. You know, like like I'm not saying I'm going to get it right 100 percent of the time. But I'm saying that I I think for most people there's a high probability that unless they're employing people who've got experience or have experience, there's a high probability that it could go wrong. And I don't think anyone wants to take on that risk. How much more risk is someone taking on, let's say that's not done a development before, in going into that sphere versus buying a buy and hold or a, a simple granny flat, which doesn't require huge complex projects? Like how much like reality are they taking on substantially more risk and it's like yeah. going on straight out? Yes. Okay. Good, good yeah, answer. I mean, I like I mean it, it, it is. It is substantially more risk. I mean, how many people have built a house? Like not that, not that many, right? And if you're going to manage the project remotely, like what are the implications of that? It's you've got to have a system, right? Now I'm not going to pretend to have all the answers here at all, but you've got to, you've got to understand, okay, what would be our uh, weekly reporting process? Uh, how would we track the project? Who's going to be in charge of what aspects of it? What are the communication pathways? How do we set up the financing structures? All of that kind of stuff. There's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of stuff to understand. So for most people, I'd say that it's, you know, that's why I, I espouse by and large a buy and hold type strategy. Now, we always talk about the value adding component. Now, the where that comes into it though is you've got to build up your uh, emotional and intellectual fortitude and also be prepared to lean into a team. Now, for reference, for reference, by and large, I will look to other people to assist with small development things. Like I won't go, yeah, yeah, I know what I'm doing, man. I'll go sort it all out. No, 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 not at all. I'll look for a local area expert. So for example, in Adelaide, we have a local area expert, 
right? We actually have a, a, a town planner in the Adelaide market. And look, let me just use Adelaide as an example. We have a town planner in the Adelaide market who's very good, has a lot of experience with subdivisions, can help us calculate, very quickly calculate the feasibility of the projects, all of that kind of stuff. I also happen to have a friend who does small developments in Adelaide. That's his whole business, right? So I can then go, hey, man, can we have to talk about this? And I can lean into him. And he also then has builders that he has reliably used on dozens and dozens of projects. So it's very easy to then go, okay, well, I've already got the network and I can do do those kind of things where I can reduce my risk. And I think it's I think that's something that people need to consider because it's all well and good. There are, like, there are courses out there um, which basically say, yeah, the, the way to financial freedom is to go and buy these chunk deals and get stuck into it and just do it all yourself and you know start to tear down houses and build rooming houses and do all kinds of crazy stuff. And I've personally spoken to so many people who've done these kind of courses that have um, gotten stuck, overwhelmed. Most of them have never started. And the reason they've never started, thankfully, is because they're just looking at all of the things going, I have no idea how this works and it's quite scary. And then there are some people who try and do it and make mistakes. And then there's a fractional percentage who do it and absolutely crazy crush it and then they're held up as the example and everyone goes, oh my God, hang on a second. Why is it that that person has succeeded and I feel I feel stuck and it can get really confusing. Now, for the most part, for business owners, I don't know that many business owners that have got like a, let's say a digital services business and they're going, you know what's really missing in my life? Site visits. You know, I, I I love my digital services business. I love everything I'm doing here. You know, the thing that's missing for me right now, I really just want to chuck the boots on, wander around site and chat with the boys. I don't think that's actually happening, right? So then you're going to think, okay, how do I realize the result? Because you've got to remember, real estate is not the goal. Real estate is the vehicle. That's so interesting. And you throw the idea in of like, if you are playing with leverage in a higher risk environment, then you just increase the risk even further. Yeah. And I have read, and this is uh, more specifically why I asked that question. I've actually read a couple of books recently about duplexes. Yeah. And I felt, um, I've got some experience in the building industry and I'm like, I felt like it was heavily oversimplified. Yep. And not in one chapter did it reference the value of experience and relationships. And I was like, surely, like, I, I just think that's such a different vibe. Yep. Anyway, Goose, thank you so much for answering my questions. You've tapped through my list into things that I've been very, very curious about and uh, eager to understand um, from you at a personal level and what you're thinking about. Yeah. I think that's it for this one. I, I just well, I just want to reiterate that, you know, I know that I was talking about 90 and 95% LVRs and stuff like that. I just want to reiterate that I, I wouldn't whole, wholesale say that that's a good idea for people. You know, I just want to reiterate the fact that the fact that we are considering in that, and again, we have we we're not haven't like launched out and started getting ninety five percent LVR loans. The fact that we are considering that is part of a larger strategy. It's a larger strategy based based on a depth of experience and capacity to manage that that risk. So I think that everyone needs to really take take these ideas and go, okay, what does that mean for me? What phase of the journey am, am I in? Why would I want to do these things? And what's the result? Because remember. Higher leverage is higher risk and lower cash flow. That's the reality of the situation. So for most people, it's going to be better to mitigate your risk. For most people, it's going to be better to have properties that are paying down their own debts. So here's here's another way to rethink this. A really great uh, financing structure for people is probably principal and interest and 80% LVR. That's a good balance of being able to a, leverage. A guiding star. Yeah, it's a guiding star, right? Because principal and interest... 
the attendance is going to be paying down the debt as long as you've got positive cash flow. And but you're also still going to be efficiently using your capital. You're not going to be very high high leveraged. You know, in context, you're not going to be super high leverage. I think that's a good benchmark for people to be thinking about. And then you've got the then you've got two sides of it. Do I want to go faster? And what does that mean? Do I want to go? I.e., do I want to go higher leverage, or do I want to? Am I happy to go a little slower but increase my cash cash flow? I.e., lower lower leverage. And they're the kind of ways to think about that kind of thing. And I think it's really important that, that everyone's. They obviously get some deep financial advice from from people you trust, not just mortgage brokers. Mortgage brokers are awesome, but they'll 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 do whatever you want them to do. But probably go see someone like your accountant or you know, and just ask for advice to say, hey, can I get your opinion? Can I get your opinion? What do you think of this? Because, and, and make sure you've got a strategy and a plan because without a plan, it's just all going to be random action. And I think it's. You've got to understand what the end game is for your strategy, for you, why you're investing, what the goal is for your personal property portfolio, your life, uh, where, like, where is it all going? And, and, and understanding what that end game is, it's not about accumulating. It's, more is not better. Like More is not better. Better is better. And that's just the facts. So without understanding where you're going and then working out how you're going to get there, I think you can end up lost and suddenly find yourself in a pretty tricky situation. Fantastic insights, Guru. So, appreciate the uh, wisdom as voice there. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Charlie. It's been fun. has been. Awesome. All right, guys. If you've enjoyed this too, make sure you share it with somebody else and uh, make sure you head to theinvestorlab.com.au to subscribe, download stuff, get the book, do all kinds of cool stuff. So, head there, check it out. There's loads of other episodes that I'm sure you will enjoy. And as ever, I look forward to seeing you on the next episode.